We want to consider this morning the cost of discipleship. What does it cost to be a disciple from Ruth chapter 1? So I invite you to turn there and our Scripture reading this morning will be from Ruth 1 verses 6 through 22. And then afterwards, our New Testament reading will be from Luke 14 verses 25 through 33, considering the cost of discipleship. beginning in verse 6 of Ruth chapter 1. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, And may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and shall bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore restrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for that is exceedingly bitter for you, or bitter for me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And then our New Testament reading will turn to the Gospel of Luke. Turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 14, and we'll read verses 25 to 33. The words of the Lord Jesus. Now when great crowds accompanied Him, He turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and child and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to, uh, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And that's where we'll end God's reading this morning. May his blessing be upon it. Dear congregation, what does it cost to be a follower of Jesus Christ? We live in an age that may be best defined as the age of convenience. We often get what we want with little thought, as soon as we want, with little commitment. We much prefer uh, one day delivery. And so, when opportunities present themselves to us in our lives, when there are crossroads before us, a fork in the road, Often the question that bears the most importance on our minds is, is it convenient for me? In other words, what will it cost me? But as we read this morning in Ruth chapter 1 and in Luke 14, convenience cannot be the deciding factor on when we want to be a disciple of Christ, when we're going to follow Jesus Christ. Ruth 1, Luke 14, show us that following Christ, following after God, is anything but easy. We have to count the cost of following Christ. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 14. He says, if you follow Me, it will cost you popularity. If you follow Me, it can cost you an easy life. The men and women who follow after Christ will have to discipline themselves. They will have to say no to the world. They have to be willing to stand alone for Jesus Christ even if no one else is willing to stand for Jesus Christ. He says persecution can be the cost of following Christ. I know that we have some guests and visitors here this morning, but at Trinity URC in the evenings, often I like to pray for the persecuted church. And last Sunday evening, we heard the report from Voice of the Martyrs that 25 Nigerian Christians, during their uh, Ascension Day service, were slaughtered by radical Islamists. The fatalities they anticipate in Nigeria will go up to 100 just from this one attack. These Christians, 
counted the cost. And it cost them everything. See, beloved, this morning as we're jumping back into Ruth 1, we see that Ruth and Naomi and Orpah are on a journey and they are now coming to a sort of crossroads on their way to Judah. I don't know if you noticed this, but in, but in Ruth 1, the word that comes up, I believe it's nine times in English, but in the Hebrew, it's twelve times is the word return. Or turn. Coming from the Hebrew word shuv, which again means to turn or return or to go back. Naomi is going to press Ruth and Orpah. They need to count the cost of being a disciple of Yahweh. If they are not serious about this faith, if they are not serious about what it costs, they might as well just turn back to Moab. In other words, what is the reason you are going to Judah? What is the reason we're at church this morning? What is the reason that we follow after God? We know that faith is ultimately a matter of the heart though. As much as this is about a journey back to Judah, a physical moving of locations from Moab around the Dead Sea and then north into Judah, we know that faith is ultimately a matter of the heart. It's not about the posture of our body or the church that we're members of, but it's most specifically about our spiritual relationship towards God. And so that old ancient word, Hebrew word, shuv, often in the Old Testament, didn't only mean their physical location of where someone was going, but it often represented the posture of their hearts. You remember these words of the Lord in 2 Chronicles 7, uh, verse, chapter 7, verse 14. He said, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and shuv, turn, from their wicked ways. It's not referring to a physical location. It's referring to the posture of their hearts. And so Ruth and Orpah have a decision to make today. Are they going to turn not only physically back to Moab, but also spiritually back to Moab? Are you going to return to the God of Shemosh? Or are you going to turn with Naomi to Judah and to Yahweh? But you need to count the cost. Because it can cost you everything in this life. But beloved, don't we know this morning that God gives abundantly more to those who are willing to sacrifice all on earth in order to have treasure in heaven. Amen? Amen. Some of you get it. (laughs) So we want to see our theme this morning. Naomi urges her daughter-in-laws to count the cost. But Ruth turns to Israel, that is, she repents and goes to Yahweh. So we want to see our headings this morning. We just have two. Counting the cost in verses 7-19. through And then we also want to see bitter providence in verses 19-22. through Counting the cost and bitter providence. We want to look at our first point this morning. Counting the cost. We see this in verse 6, the second half. It says, For she had heard in the fields of Moab 
that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. The word heard, make sure you pay attention to that. She is all the way in Moab. If I had a map of Israel here, you'd see Judah sort of right in the middle, and then you've got to go around the Dead Sea and into Moab on the other side of the Dead Sea. God's word of provision, God's grace towards His people in Judah, giving them bread, has made it all the way around the Dead Sea and into the fields of Moab. Don't forget that this is before Twitter. This is before email. This is before Facebook. God's message of grace was traveling around the world. And it says that God, in verse 6, had visited, depending on your Bible translation, it can also say comforted His people with bread. As we talked about last week, verse 6 is dripping with God's grace. God has heard the repentance of His people. People of Israel had repented for their sins. And now God is providing them provision. He's sending them deliverance. Naomi hears this and we see that she begins to travel uh, south and then north around the Dead Sea uh, towards Judah. And she brings Ruth and Orpah with her, at least for the first leg of the journey. But she is going to press them with three dialogues to count the cost of following her to Judah. Now, Naomi is going to do the majority of the speaking in chapter 1. And I want to ask you a rhetorical question this morning. As you look through this chapter, how would you describe Naomi's attitude here on their journey back to Judah? I don't think she's happy or joyful this morning. It might even be a stretch to say that she's content. Now, what we're seeing with Naomi is she's actually bemoaning her position. She's Filled with sorrow, she's lamenting over her situation in life. And this can be a hard truth that Christians need to learn is that even for those who follow Yahweh, even those, for those who respond to His grace, it can be hard to deal with trials like this. See, many people, if we were placed in Naomi's shoes, we'd shake our fists at God. How can you be a God of love if you would let this happen to me? But Naomi doesn't do that. Instead, that all-important word, shuv, returns there in those first few verses. It says she returns. She's seen the error of her way. She repents. And presumably before they get to Judah, while they're still in the land of Moab, it says... She says these words, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law in in verses 8 and 9, Go and return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, and the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Now this offends our modern Christian sensibilities, doesn't it? Last week, as we looked at the first six verses, we talked about the goodness of God, the promises of God, being near to the presence of God in Jerusalem. And now she's saying, trying to dissuade them from coming. Likewise, Christ in Luke 14 says, tries to dissuade some of those people who are following Him for the wrong reasons. She says, if you're going to journey with Me back to Judah, you need to count the cost. 
Notice what she says. She's saying, in Judah there's no promise of financial security. In Judah there's no guarantee of material and physical comfort. As foreigners in the ancient world, there would have been no guarantee of a husband, which would have meant provision, children, and hope. There's no guarantee of these things. So she says, go and return to your mother's house. A term that's used only three times in the Bible and it's referring to love and to marriage. She says, these are things you may not get if you follow me to Judah. Go turn back. And so the second dialogue is really focused on Orpah. It's focused on Orpah, one of Naomi's daughter-in-laws. It says in response in verse 10, they kissed and they wept. And at first, Ruth and Orpah say they want to return with Naomi to Judah. But Naomi continues to lament. She continues to try to dissuade them from following her. Look at what she says. She says, you need to consider your own future. In verse 11, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my wombs that they may become your husbands? This indicates that Ruth and Orpah are both likely still young, still of childbearing years. And she's asking, what kind of Jews, what God-fearing men would want to marry a Moabite widow? That's what she's saying. She's saying you are going to be the social outcasts of Israel. No, no, you should turn back. And you might wonder, well, maybe Naomi could bear children. and Maybe she could give children to Ruth and Orpah. But look what she says in verses 12-13. through 13. Consider Naomi's future. She says, turn back again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, will you therefore wait until they were grown? Why would you refrain from marrying? This is referring to something in the... Old Testament in the five books of Moses, which we call Leverite marriage. It's described in Deuteronomy 25, which taught that a brother-in-law could replace a deceased husband to a woman to provide her children. Back in the ancient world, it was likely that women would have married around the age of 15 or 20. So even if we presume that Naomi had children at 15 and had her or was married at 15, had her two children by 20, and if they were 15 or 20 years old when they were married, and this is 10 years later, that makes Naomi 55, which in the ancient world would make you a senior citizen. Don't worry, 55 is not a senior citizen any longer. But it would have put her certainly past menopause. No longer able, able to bear children. There are probably some ladies here who are thinking, I wouldn't want to marry my brother-in-law. But This was a huge matter of cultural importance in the ancient family-centric lifestyle. And she says, Naomi says, you have to consider my future. I can't bear children for you. So she says, you need to consider your future. You're going to be the social outcast of Judah. She says, you need to consider my future. I can't give you children. I can't give you provision. I can't give you blessing. And then look what she says in verse 13. You need to consider God's plan. Her final line in this second dialogue is, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Literally what this says in Hebrew, it says, I am much too bitter for you. It seems for poor Naomi that wherever she's gone, tragedy has followed her. Famine, exile, bereavement, childlessness, and her two daughters-in-law. And what does she say? She says, Yahweh, Jehovah is the one who is bringing it about. Are you sure you want to follow? This is the fork in the road before these two women. Saying, you can go to Jerusalem, you can come with me to Bethlehem, I should say, and you can have Jehovah plus nothing, or you can return to your mother's house and you can have everything minus Jehovah and Moab. That's the cost. That's the fork in the road. Jehovah plus nothing or everything minus Jehovah. It says, Orpah counted the cost. And the cost was too high. And so she says, and so the Scriptures say that she turns back and she walks right off the page of Old Testament history. We never hear of her again. You might think this morning, well, Jesus is the one who came in the New Testament. He is the one who's about gospel grace. He's the one about forgiveness. And doesn't he lessen the restrictions? Doesn't he lessen his expectations for us? But if you still have a finger in Luke 14, what does Christ say in verse 33? He says, Therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. He is saying that we cannot be true Christians. We cannot be true disciples. We cannot have a right relationship with God if we do not give up all of our possessions. Christ is not saying that we need to buy ourselves into the kingdom of God because, beloved, don't we know there's not enough gold, there's not enough silver, there's not enough money in this world to remove the stain of sin. But what Christ is calling us to is total commitment to Him. Total commitment to Him. He doesn't lessen the cost of discipleship. And so we see though in verse 14 that Ruth cleaves to Naomi. She turns to Israel. That word cleave is the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24 when it says a, a man and a woman should come together and cling to one another. But Naomi is going to continue to push her in this third dialogue. Push her to take a stand. Push her to say it outright. Why are you coming to Judah? As one preacher said, saving faith is coming to the end of yourself and completely and entirely trusting all that you are to all that He is. Close quote. Instead of turning back to Moab, back to Shemosh, back to her gods, she counts the cost and turns to Jerusalem. Her confession in verses 16 and 17 is the jewel of this chapter. She's counted the cost. And why is she going to Judah? Look at what she says. She makes six oaths. She says she's going to go to the promised land. Where you go, I will go. 
She, she will stay wherever Ruth is. Where you lodge, I will lodge. But the center is the jewel. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. For those of you who have read the Old Testament, you're familiar with its language. This should be ringing off alarm bells in our mind. What is she quoting here? Remember what God said in Genesis 17. I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be the God to you and your offspring after you. Here she is paraphrasing God's covenant promise to His people. She says the words that God used when He committed Himself to saving His people, the God who has made covenant with Abraham, the God who has saved His people out of Egypt, the God who has promised salvation by His grace in the Old Testament, this is the God that I give Myself in complete surrender to. This is our call as well. Here in 2021, we need to be willing to give up father and mother. Willing to give up wife and children and brother and sister. Whoever does not bear his own cross, says Christ, and come after Me, cannot be My disciple. Just like Naomi, Jesus doesn't promise financial blessings. He doesn't guarantee material comfort and physical comfort. But He does promise to all who totally surrender to Him, who give their supreme allegiance and their supreme loyalty to Christ, that He will be your God. You will be His people. And He will not abandon you on that last day. That we are the inheritors of His covenant promise to save His people by grace. Have you yielded your life to the Lordship of Christ? Jesus is pressing you for a decision. Yes, we need to weigh the cost factor. Yes, we need to count a disciple, count the cost of being a disciple of Christ. But you cannot buy your way into the kingdom of heaven. Christ is calling for all of our lives. That our life is not to be our life, but it's to be His life. That our time is not to be our time, but His time. Our possessions are not to be our possessions, but His possessions. Our future is not our future, it's His future. To be a disciple of Christ is to transfer all that we have to all that He is. Are you a disciple this morning? Maybe there are some of us here this morning who more identify with Orpah than Ruth. Maybe we're often around church because of our spouses, our family, our parents, our friends. There are many even today who say they follow Jesus, but they're more committed to their family just as Orpah was committed to Naomi. But Christ is calling us. Naomi is pressing us. Not to the love of tradition. Not to the love of family. But to the love of Him who promises to save sinners by His grace. That's what we're to give ourselves wholly to.
We see that Naomi still was challenged though. Look at her response in verses 19-22. through This is our second point, a bitter visitation. It's a bit shorter than our first. As Naomi and Ruth again have traveled around the bottom of the Dead Sea, they've passed through Arad to the south of Judah. They've gone through Hebron and now they have arrived in Bethlehem. And Notice the response of the people this morning. In verse 19, it says, when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. Hebrew translators don't really know what this word means. It could also be translated as they're buzzing. And the women say, is this Naomi? But the context of the question isn't that they can't recognize her identity. Surely they would have recognized her. But more of a question of what happened to you? You've changed Naomi. Well, of course, it's likely true that she had a few more gray hairs, a few more lines in her face and wrinkles. But the question isn't about her physical appearance, it's about her character. Naomi, the name Naomi means the pleasant one. When she moved to Bethlehem, from Bethlehem, she was the pleasant one. There were four of them. Three men to support and protect her. Going to Moab, out to make it out on their own. But now she returns and the whole town is buzzing at her return. And look at her interpretation of her experience in Moab. Do not call me Naomi the Pleasant One. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And that's what Mara means. It means bitter. Isn't it interesting that in verses 16-17, through 17, in Ruth's confession of faith, look at Naomi's response. Nothing. This is an astonishing response. You see, when we read Ruth's words in that verses 16-17, through 17, our first instinct is to frame them and put it on our wall. Or to recite them as our wedding vows. They profoundly touch us. Where you go, I will go. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. I will die with you. But Naomi's silence is a loud silence. Indicating to the reader the bitterness of her heart. This is how she interprets the last decade of her life. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me that the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She went away full. She had a full family going to do for themselves in Moab what God could not do for them in Israel. So she thought. Sinclair Ferguson says they were not materially full, but they were full of themselves, boldly put. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant, for I'm bitter. As you look at these first or these last four verses here, four times she refers to the God of Israel. She says, Yahweh, Yahweh, Lord, Lord. Here we see 
She clearly believes in the sovereignty of God, doesn't she? She's orthodox on this point. The one who's brought this calamity upon her is God Himself. She knows the sovereignty of God. Her question is, is God truly good? Is God truly good? She knows His sovereignty, but she doesn't feel His grace. The big question becomes, how can God be good while I'm suffering? Look at what Jesus says in Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I just want us to notice two things about this. Jesus expects nothing of you that He has not accepted for Himself. Consider that for a moment. Jesus has, expects nothing of you that He has not accepted for Himself. Jesus Himself in chapter 9 of Luke has set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem to be crucified, to suffer and to die, and to be a disciple of Christ means to join Him in His suffering. All of us have a cross to bear. All of us must pick it up and suffer for Jesus Christ. We will endure many trials. There is a cost to being a disciple. There's a book by this title, The Cost of Discipleship, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German Lutheran pastor during the Nazi occupation, who was opposed to the Nazis. He was put in prison for his views of opposition to Adolf Hitler. He says these words about the suffering of the cross. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christian suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It's the dying of the old man which results in his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we must surrender ourselves to Christ in union with His death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins... The cross is not the terrible end to God-fearing and a happy life. Listen to this, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, says Bonhoeffer, He bids him to come and die. Close quote. To the ancient world, the cross was seen as a barbaric torture device, but to us it's seen as the symbol of hope. Because even though Satan and his demons and his followers meant it for evil, God meant it for good. The Father caused Christ the Son to triumph through the cross. The cross has been set before Naomi. The cross has been set before Ruth. The cross has been set before Orpah. And they need to count the cost of continuing The journey to Judah. One thing is absolutely clear. We need to be absolutely clear about this morning. We do not suffer in this life for no reason. The book of Ruth is ultimately a book of hope that God in His sovereign purpose would use their suffering to bear fruit that will last for eternity. 
Ruth or Naomi doesn't see it now, but God certainly does. Ruth and Naomi's counting the, sp- the cost despite the crosses they endure illustrate well the hymn writer William Cowper's words, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet is the flower. We need to count the cost of being a disciple. We may endure bitter providences in this life, but the cost, the cost may be high, but the reward is great for those in Christ. For Christ Himself says, take My yoke upon Me and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and My burden is light. That is for the disciples, the cost may be high, the cross may be gruesome, but for those who are partnering with Christ, eternal life is ours in Him. For those willing to forsake the world, they shall receive the crown of eternal life. Though Ruth and Naomi had many trials to endure, and many bitter providences were set before them, Eternal life would be theirs because they counted the cost knowing that in Jehovah there was life to be had and life eternal and Christ to come. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give You thanks this Sabbath day for Your Word unto us. You have set the cross before us. We know that in this life we, will, we may endure many trials. We may endure many bitter providences. But Lord, You have worked in our hearts to show us not only our crosses that are set before us, but the cross of Jesus Christ. That is our hope this morning, that He endured the cross. We can endure all suffering and all trials in Him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that You might bless it unto our hearts, that You might help us to count the cost, to consider being a disciple of Jesus Christ, but to know that it is worth it, for He has made terms of peace by His cross. We ask God for those who are going through bitter providences even this day, who are struggling. We ask, Heavenly Father, that You might bless them, give them an eternal perspective of how to endure life's trials, knowing that in Christ all things will work to our good. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.